the inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website. That's newthinkingaloud.org. You can even order a printed copy from mta-magazine.magcloud.com. Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Guidelines for Future UFO Researchers, and my guest is Ray Stanford. If you haven't watched the previous video with Ray on analyzing UFO photographs, I'm going to recommend that you see it now. It'll make this video all the more interesting, and I'm going to link to it. On the upper right corner of your screen, there'll be a hot link for those of you who have uh, phones or computers capable of accessing that link. Ray has had a long-standing career as a UFO researcher. He wrote the book, Socorro Saucer. It's been published in two different editions. He was one of the first people on the scene of that very important UFO sighting dating back to the 1960s. He's also had a career as a trans channel and psychic reader and a paleontologist, as a matter of fact. He was featured on the cover of the Sunday magazine of the Washington Post as the amazing Dino Man. Ray lives on the East Coast. I went and visited him at his home there. And now I'm going to switch over to that interview. So the topic for today is going to be guidelines for future UFO researchers. Uh, yes. What are the things that they need to pay attention to? And a good way to preface this is to point out that you were the founder of the Journal of Instrumented UFO Research back in the 1970s. Right, right. And I, I really pioneered. And, uh, yeah, because we can, we can show various things if you like. Well, you let me know what visuals you want. Because we definitely want to show Faraday rings and, uh, we may want to show the visible magnetic field, I would think. And, uh, and then I, I like to show where you can show the magnetic and gravitic and show that they're, they're two t distinct parameters. One has inertial lag and, it, and it's the gravimeter because it does have a sensor in it to detect magnet, uh, gravity changes down to one millionth of a G. I think it's important to point that out. In the instrumented UFO research, which is what you advocate, you emphasize the magnetometer and the gravimeter. And uh, each of these instruments is going to measure extremely weak fluctuations in either... Or, or strong ones either way. It can detect extremely weak. Yeah. It needs to be able to detect That's extremely right. weak. That's right. For our viewers' benefit, can you define what a gravimeter is it measures in changes it changes in uh, in local gravity it, it 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 can measure 
very extreme changes or very tiny changes down to one millionth of what we normally have. I mean, it, it could, if, if our local gravity field changes even one millionth of its value or above that, it will detect that. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the interesting thing is about this machine is that it has internally to it a mass that is used, a sensor mass, as it's called, and uh, and it, it monitors the changes in the mass of that tiny mass. But the the uh, uh, the interesting thing about it is when you're using it in combination with the extreme low frequency magnetometer that's recording extreme low frequency magnetic waves, you can compare them in what's called an analog gravitational chart with it charting it out as, as waves and uh, uh, up and down like that across time. And uh, the fascinating thing is you can actually, during events that we have recorded, you can look at the recording and see, for example, when an object made a visually almost instantaneous reversal of direction, you can see that there's a strong change in the magnetic, the extreme low frequency magnetism, and you can see the same kind of wave in G, or gravity. But what is fascinating is when you look at the graph, one charted in real time, one above the other, you will see that the change in gravity registered a tiny fraction of a second later than the magnetic. That's important because it absolutely proves that you're getting not an induction effect by the magnetometer, which is shielded against anyhow, but that that in fact what you're getting is the evidence of the inertia of the sensor mass. Inertia is the tendency of a mass to stay in the condition of motion or lack of motion it is in. So in looking at the graph one of the other, the gravimeter under the magnetometer, for example, the way we do it, um, you can actually see this tiny lag that is proof that it is actually a, a gravitational action on the sensor mass and not an induction effect of magnetism, which I said it couldn't be either way because the gravimeter system is shielded. But that's a really nice uh, adjunct that you can actually, the physicist can just immediately look at and see, uh, yes, that's a real signal coming from the gravimeter. And of course, if gravity is changing locally in any appreciable way, it's not a normal thing. It's, it's, it's going to be an effect of the uh, uh, of the objects that we are monitoring. Especially if you see it reverse its direction at high speed. Yes. In, in this case, we actually have, we know from that event, for example, the, the event I'm thinking about right now was in West Texas on July 19th in broad daylight. And we had two definite anomalous, definitely anomalous aerial objects. And then suddenly one would be, would reverse its direction. It would have be completely, re- and they're moving at what looks like that they're quite a distance away at high speed. It's suddenly within one second is moving in the other, the absolutely opposite direction. Well, we had this twice within a short amount of time, an object, the same, the same object reversing its direction and, uh, and we, we have this beautifully recorded and you see the changes in G and you see the changes in magnetic that are associated with that reversal of direction. 
We have lots of examples of this from numbers of different, uh, that one field trip, for example, on the 27th of July, that was the 19th that I mentioned, but also in broad daylight on the 27th of July, we had marvelous examples of this when a large, a huge, what we'd call a carrier object or a mothership uh, came out of a, a thunderhead, cumulonimbus cloud, and uh, and went out and stopped east of us about 90 miles from us, a long ways away. But it started launching smaller objects. And some of these objects started zipping at high speed up very much in our direction. And you see this. You see their changes in direction and their stops. You can see this on the magnetometer and gravimeter outputs as well as on the movie film. Well, it's pretty rare for people to be able to capture uh, such objects on on film, but you've managed to do it um, many dozens of times. That's right, and, and in, in this case, to grab to to record it with both the extreme low frequency magnetism and gravitational changes. Let me mention you. You said that I advocate this. I don't only advocate it; I do it. <laughs> I practice it. I started this uh, in in the early seventies. Uh, started uh, through the corporation we were working with, uh, accumulating uh, good cameras. And, and then we contracted for the extreme low frequency magnetometer. We had reason to believe from other things and consulting with physicists that these objects emit a magnetic uh, signal in, uh, in the extreme low frequency range. And we're not talking about in extreme high frequency. We're talking about we're monitoring an extreme low frequency. And it seems to have a correlation with their maneuvers. Well, we've proved that it does. So we ordered these produced for us and we we have them and we used them in the field but our, uh, our a big opportunity came when uh, in July of 1978 and here's how it came about I received a call from a very nice lady who uh, had a relative that worked at uh, let's say in the in the white sands area and uh, uh, she said, listen, she said, I was, I was, I was, she saw some presentation of me about our equipment, a project Starlight International and our equipment. She said, listen, you had better get out there, out to, uh, New Mexico, uh, area, because the government is starting experiments, uh, apparently to attempt to communicate with these objects or to in some ways affect them to react because uh, it turns out we found out they produced a huge, and we, we saw this and photographed it, huge group of lighted sequencing panels atop Oscura Peak there in New Mexico. And uh, th- we were so thankful that this wonderful lady informed us. I mean, we ourselves had been uh, using a light circle, a 100-foot in diameter light circle that was sequ- These are 100-watt or 150-watt, I got a spot spotlights around this circle i forget how many but a huge number of them, and they were sequenced and uh, we were not, perhaps naively but trying to use this to to get the attention to at least get the attention of the uh, anomalous serial objects whether we were going to get them to respond in a reciprocal communication attempt we 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 just hoped we didn't know but it turns out the government must have admired our effort because long after we had started doing this, they decided to do it up on Oscura Peak, these big lighted panels. We saw it. We photographed it. And we responded. There was, of course, the UFO events that occurred, and we recorded. 
And I, I would suspect that some of it was in response to the government's uh, signal to him. But I was, it, it looks like the way in, 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 in some of these events we accounted, uh, encountered out on that trip in New Mexico and then into Arizona, the Prescott National Forest event, uh, that, that we, we successfully recorded this and that, uh, uh, it, it, we believe it was all related to the, the same, the fact that we and the government were out there because they were definite in this event from the mountaintop in the Sco- in the, uh, the Skull Valley overlook of Prescott National Forest. They were definitely responding to us and our presence there. But they were also doing the same thing apparently in West Texas. But we think their major activity there was probably in response to the lighted panels. But the thing I want to stress is if you really want to do research on anomalous aerial objects, you have to use instruments that record optically and electronically. And that is what we're doing. And so much of UFO research over the decades has totally ignored this wonderful opportunity. Scientists have been screaming at us, so to speak, that get us this kind of data. Well, we took it seriously. And I said, we've got to get that kind of data. Whether the government ever gets any and admits it or not, we're going to get it and we're going to admit it and we're going to analyze it and publish it. But it needs to be analyzed in relationship to what you saw, the maneuvers, and so on and so forth. And we have that wonderful correlation because we can time correlate the movie with the recording from the magnetometer and gravimeter in that, for example, uh, uh, event from the Skull Valley Overlook in the Prescott National Forest. But this is a big difference. Uh, in, in my approach, I yes, I advocate, but I practice it. I'm not ever good. I practice it. Uh, this is what we need if we're going to communicate with scientists. Uh, I react to the, the cowardly reaction of UFO research, which is saying, we're studying, the government, we're studying anomalous aerial phenomena. They know these are objects. That's a, a phenomenon doesn't land and leave four deep landing gear imprints and a burned up creosote bush. Uh, the object as a crow did. Uh, these are objects. And as you've seen in many of my daylight images, they, they are structured objects. They actually have structure. They're objects that are constructed or built. We don't know what technology they use for sure, but we know that they are wonderful uh, objects. Yes, these objects surely can create phenomena such as the uh, wonderful glows and, and uh, effects on gravity and magnetism that we record. But they themselves are objects, and I want to stress that, and we need to treat them in science as if they were objects. As long as we present they were, I mean, saying phenomena, well, we might be talking about ghosts. No, we are dealing with objects, and if we want to approach it from that standpoint, that physical science can understand it, we must use these kinds of instruments. But these things, these instruments, these cameras, can show us things that normally, even about these objects, the eye doesn't see. Surely they'll show us the visible plasma patterns reacting to the magnetic field. But wonderfully so, and long before UFOs, there was a phenomenon discovered called Faraday rotation, in which the plane of polarization is rotated in the presence of a magnetic field. You can't see this with the naked eye. But with, for example, the movie camera 
that we've used on so many of these occasions. In the movie camera, you're looking to an eyepiece that is seeing one of the polarities of light because when the light comes through the lens, it hits what's called a beam splitter. And one polarity of light is going to the eyepiece. The other polarity is going to the film. Perfect. Ideal. That way you can record scientifically, objectively, measurably, analytically. You can, you can analyze the results of the film. It will produce, they produce rings due to Faraday rotation. You've seen them. I've showed you some, some of the things from the movie films and the still pictures, wonderful pictures of this, which we'll be sharing here. Uh, they're, they're no secret, but they are absolutely solid conclusive evidence, even in, uh, as uh, one of your professors, Dr. Harder, James Harder, Harder, uh, as he described, the uh, the bright bands are going to be broader than the narrow bands. That's exactly the way they are. The absolutely mind-boggling thing is an example of what, why I'm advocating this now to you, every ufologist listening. It's what you can get that, that is just wonderful. Harder mentioned that uh, that it takes a very strong magnetic field just to, to rotate, to produce one of these bands of light and, and dark. But, and he said, he said, well, he said, two would require a magnetic field so strong that we've only done it for very short periods in the laboratory. Well, the amazing thing is in the context of what Dr. Harder said about even the difficulty of getting two of these, uh, ring sets, uh, is that in that particular event, it generates a total of, uh, as you counted them, 14 of these rings. Imagine if, if one requires about what we can easily do in the lab and with difficulty for a short period, we might generate two rings. What does it require to produce 14 rings? As I recall, Harder testified to Congress in 1968 that to, to produce three rings would take over a million gauss, and it's almost impossible to produce that in a laboratory. This does so much more for ufology than say, oh, did you know the government has a crash craft out there? It's secret. We can't see it. It's above top secret. That doesn't do anything, neither for the public except make them paranoid against the government. Which they, I, I want the public to understand from my standpoint yeah. that the government has its reasons. If they have evidence of an advanced technology, we have enemies in this world that would love to knock us off the face of the planet. And um, there are things that it's justified to keep secrets. I'm not. That's why I think we need to forget this harping against the government and all their dark secrets. Yes, they happen. I've been influenced by this attempt too in some of my research that you've heard about but I don't resent it I understand it I tolerate it but if we're going to get beyond this and talk to science and have science talking back studying analyzing and talking back to the public about this we're going to have to use instrumented data if we don't have a picture of one of these things landing and sitting down on the ground and taking off again at least the distant instrumented data. This is what I'm not only advocating, but practicing. And I, I present what we're going to show today as the reason we have to come to this conclusion. This is the great payoff in UFO research, not Yahoo. You know, the government's got a secret crap, but we know they've got aliens in contact. Yes, I believe they have, 
but we've got to deal with what we can produce with instruments. If we happen to get occupants uh, inside uh, the vehicle, that's fine. That's just one more evidence that it's it's something, if they don't look human, <laughs> that is something beyond human. Another thing we need to look for is high-speed relocations during a single exposure of film. People have said, well, I don't understand it. It was sitting there, and the next thing, you know, it was way across the sky over here, the same object. Yes. Oh, yes, we have films of that too. But we have films of much faster than that, where apparently the, what we call the target object was being seen and filmed while that was happening during the 500th of a second, for example, that it was happening. The object went and and stopped for a tiny fraction of a 500th of a second. And again, for another fi- tiny fraction of a 500th of a second and another sometimes several beyond that. You've seen the images. These are, at least if we want to be realistic, and interpret interpret them in some realistic way, we have to understand that the object that was sitting there also went there and there and there. Unless this was some mysterious optical enlargement, but the object looks like it's getting closer, for example, in, in this case, much closer, uh, several diameters closer, several times closer. And But we can only get this with instruments. The human eye can never record events this fast, and we have to accept that the instrument sees things, the camera, the good camera, sees things a lot more, that uh, the, the eye doesn't have the sensitivity to record. We have to step beyond the sensitivities of a human body and perceptual system and get with these instruments and realize they are where we get the pay dirt, the paid dirt, I'm sorry, in UFO research. Well, the fact, Ray, that we're having this conversation in the year 2022, and you're reminding our viewers, and hopefully there will be UFO researchers amongst our viewers, about research you were doing in the 1970s suggests that there's been a a huge historical gap in uh, the progress of UFO research, that uh, there isn't a straight continuity between what you were doing in the 1970s and where we are today. Yes, there is a wonderful continuity, and it's actually contained in movie films and still so. For example, on September 18th, 1956, my identical twin brother Rex Stanford and I and a, a friend named Michael J. Robesicki Jr., went out to uh, uh, the high desert area to a place called Giant Rock. And uh, we weren't there going there because of the rock, but be- because there was, a, there was a fellow there, George Van Sassel, who claimed some kind of contact. I'm not in a position to evaluate whether he was or wasn't having contact. But we went out there because it looked like a good place to get away from the general public and the traffic of the interstate and to have an encounter. And, and, and we felt that I felt somehow intuitively if we went out there, I said, I think we're going to have an encounter. Well, we walked out from the rock maybe a half mile and we had a wonderful encounter, which we filmed with the eight millimeter, it wasn't super eight millimeter back then, but eight millimeter camera that we have. And believe it or not, back then, and we, we also watched through uh, 10 power binoculars and uh, we had a film, we, we, we described later and drew the crescent-shaped, the golden crescent-shaped object with a double crescent at its back, and we said that we saw and filmed 
a field around it reminded us of a jellyfish in the water pulsing. Well, own a frame from the film that you've seen. We've got the golden object, and around it you can actually see the contour of a magnetic field, which we now know was visible due to plasma, a glowing atmosphere, electrified atmosphere, being moved in the magnetic torus of the magnetic, magnetic donut, to use lay language, of the magnetic field. And you can actually see that even from that little 8 millimeter film from 1956. Yeah. But as you know, now we can, can show you much more numerous examples of that. Uh, the, the most spectacular, which possibly uh, is the, the one that I filmed right at Goddard Space Flight Center. And, uh, and it, it shows it beautifully. The target object, as we call it, had been brightly covered with plasma, and so we didn't, we didn't see this. But in the, the last of the five photographs, uh, my, my wife, I was going in to pick her up in the, in the, uh, uh, building eight where she was working. It was the end of the day, end of the work day. And, uh, I, I saw this and got out of my car and I'm photographing these things, and it looks like the bright domed object, uh, in the first four, but all of a sudden, in the last one, I I saw and, and this was so fast. I came in and so told Sheila. I said, "I think I got this on film. This this brightness is on the object. All of a sudden, was not only object, but it was an opaque object, a light and, and shadow object with pattern. But it had out around it in a donut. You could see that, like in memory in school, where you used to your teacher used to put a bar magnet down and put a piece of paper over it and scatter a bunch of iron filings on top and you'd see this. She'd say, this is what a magnetic field is. You can't see it, but the magnetic filings show, show you the field. Well, it looked like that for a moment, and at that moment that object disappeared to the eye completely. Well, we know now it was because it had to move that plasma off the surface, increase the magnetic field magnitude, and produce it in a way that it would move it magnetohydrodynamically, magnetoplasma dynamically, if you prefer, uh, off at high speed, and it was gone so the eye could not see it. But I, 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 I then, it, the vent was over, and I ran inside, and I said, I think, I think maybe I got a magnetic field. And uh, I, I said, it looked like all of a sudden that this field formed. And uh, now when I look back over the history, and the, we have other examples, this just happens to be the, the most dramatic but even one I, I discovered just uh, last night or this morning in going through my records, uh, it, it, there's, there's a, a film up there. It was in Phoenix. I said, the popcorn effect. I described filming this object, and all of a sudden it vanished, but the one, only one movie frame, before it vanishes, it's suddenly much larger and looks like a big pattern of puffy popcorn. Well, I suspect at low resolution with the little camera I was using that that was this distribution of the plasma into the magnetic field, but it's so wonderful years later to have photographed, and especially wonderful to have photographed standing right in front of uh, the administration building, Building 8 at Goddard Space Flight Center in broad daylight. This uh, no, clearly, what you can clearly, every physicist, every uh, even uh, aircraft engineer, that uh, spacecraft engineer would say, that has seen this concurs, hey, that's what we're seeing. But it, it, to see it across time, a spectrum of time, because I was using even way back in Phoenix a camera, it's because I had a camera. Hey, ufology, you've got to get camera smart 
and you've got to get instrument smart and put this if you want to put down the 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 whole home the oh yeah there might be something they're taking lately and leasing releasing a few fuzzy infrared black and white pictures you want to put that down and say look guys there's good stuff that shows this show us the good stuff once the evidence is out there and we can point at that then scientists will become they will even psychologically know hey we've got to show that this guy stanford is not beyond us that we've got better stuff i hope they could decide to go put me down and say hey that's junior stuff compared to what we've got i hope they do that because i'm convinced if they don't have that then i'm greatly surprised because we have wonderful instruments up in space and down on the earth that can photograph anything that moves through the sky if they want to they've got to have this but by releasing what we are starting to release here in this interview for example i hope we get a more open and honest reaction we like we got to show them more than these crappy little black and white infrared pictures well in 1968 as i recall it was the condon report analyzing the data from project blue book and they concluded and uh, it was reissued in the new york times that uh, ufo research is a waste of time because there are no patterns it's just sort of random anomalies and not worth bothering with what you're saying is there are distinctive patterns and those patterns give us insights as to the nature of the propulsion system that these nuts and bolts craft are using that is correct and what is important in the presentations i do is that as you've seen there are other cases out there that people have released that show some of these same phenomena they may not have the classy equipment we have but in their pictures in their films in their movies you you've seen some of you've seen the faraday rings and there there are other examples that i believe even suggest the the magnetic field not nearly as good as as, as the goddard picture for example but the fact is that there are correlations i'm not the only guy out there that's getting these bless their hearts these other people are doing it too it's just they haven't had the opportunity to get the financing or the motivation to get out and spend their life uh, doing this but the thing is we have a continuum of evidence not from one person raised stanford but from numbers of other honest people and i want to say this the importance of instrumented ufo recording if somebody shows you supposed Oh wow, speakers of a spacecraft like like certain hosters have done that they claim this is a craft. Well, George Adamski for one, I can name him. But there are others who are still living today. Uh, and now, for example, there were the fake pictures of Billy Edward Meyer that were being promoted. These are fake. When you are shown a picture of a craft in the sky, supposedly under under power, in other words. If it doesn't have some of this exotic physics, physics now the camera might not have shot in polarized light, so you might not have Faraday right thing. But if it doesn't have plasma phenomena, glow phenomena around it, and often perhaps showing even the effect of a magnetic field acting upon those uh, plasmas, if it doesn't have some of that and some odd streaks that go out from it that are high speed phenomena that I won't try to go into right here, that that we and numerous other people have gotten this it is a fake that's another reason you need to study to get and study yourself get in with instruments too but and study mine and other people's and your evidences you can then put the lie 
on these phony pictures of models that people. But, but that assumes that every UFO has the same manner of propulsion. They could no, be no, it doesn't. But if it has propulsion, it has to act upon the mass of the object and enter atmosphere. And in order to do that, you have to use physics to move it out of the way. And you will get the physics. I can guarantee you. But I've been at this, as I've said, uh, that, there was that film in, in 1956, September 18th. And then there's the one in Phoenix, that I think might have been even before that, that I mentioned the popcorn effect. But as we go across time, the thing is, across all these years, how long is that this take from 56 to uh, to now? How long is that? Well, we're, we're, we're over 50 years. Well, the latest fakers are people who claim that they have been on spacecraft and have visited uh, moon bases and have visited bases on Mars uh, that the U.S. government has established in conjunction with various alien entities. I, I have even heard uh, people tell me uh, with all apparent sincerity that there have been conferences here on Earth where multiple alien races have have come to meet together with the U.S. government. Well, the question is, what evidence do they have of this? Well, of course, than no, no evidence. Yes, yes. The thing I'm talking about is evidence. That is why we need to not let the hoaxers distract us trying to disprove their things, even though we may realize, hey, uh, but we need to start getting the kind of evidence that enables science to be secure in joining us and saying, wait, we have knowledge. We have a body of knowledge that we can, we have interpreted and it tells us certain things. Now, if somebody comes up with a craft with thing that shows things beyond the physics that I've been filming and others have been filming all these years, great. Maybe we'll learn something more. But for now, over 50 years, there are sets of phenomena, and one that is absolutely permanent is the presence of an incredibly strong magnetic field and a plasma in association with it, an electrified atmosphere in connection with it. Well, there are also a wide range of psychological and physiological effects that, that have been reported amongst the people who observe these craft. And in fact, you yourself have uh, reported to me that you experienced uh, missing time. So uh, it's it's not just a simple matter of gathering equipment and going out on field trips. There, there are other aspects of the phenomena that one needs to prepare okay. themselves for. Uh, well, the trouble is, if you don't have a background in knowing how these craft operate and seeing the evidence, when they begin to describe things, I, I could show you some some drawings that some of these contactees have made and so on and so forth. They're not describing the kind of things that we're recording on film or that they were, that, that, that even that we are seeing, they're describing as if, oh, this were just a plastic saucer and it came down and I stepped aboard and blah, blah, blah. They're not offering us, you know. I'm uh, not talking about the fakes now. I'm talking about real experiences okay, now, that, like that you have had. Yeah, okay. Now, let me be clear. There, there are two kinds of things. To me, the, the, the one of the things that, in the context of what you said, that we need to first be aware of is something that I call the euphoria. UFO, uh, E-U-P-H-O-R-I-A means a, 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 a real false, intense sense, maybe even a false sense of well-being. Uh, but 
these objects, this magnetic field can cause this. There's research that tells us that this extreme low frequency magnetism affects the brain strongly. And we know for sure from experiments in the lab, not related to UFOs, just with other research, that yes, the brain is affected by this. But what I have found and will swear to, and anybody who's been associated with me in these events will swear to, you can really get a brain soaking in these events, and it can make you feel, wow. It, 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 and, and leading up to it, when they're in the area before you even see them, you can often sense they're in and you say, oh, uh, I feel the, the, the euphoria, they're around. This is real, it's not subjective, it's real. Now, I'm sure there are people that, in a highly subjective state of mind, can imagine this, but I'm talking about something you're just ordinarily feeling in an ordinary way, and all of a sudden, and uh, throughout it, one studies the details of some of my cases where other people are involved, you'll see that that I and other people started feeling this and said, uh-oh, we had better get out there with those cameras and instruments. And it worked. They were there. This is important. We can use our brain in this respect as an instrument, as an alarm to help us get out with the real physical instrument. The brain's a physical instrument too, but the one to which we can record it. And uh, uh, so this is an important point. That is something that, that, that is quite important. Now, the abduction thing is is different. I mean, uh, yes, uh, I can say for sure that uh, that I have been abducted and also people with me, but we know little about what happened. We don't know. And uh, I am somewhat dubious of the cases where people claim, now there are people who claim friendly space visitors picked me up. This was not abduction. Oh, yes, I knew. I saw the craft come down. I'm very dubious of such cases. There may be some that are real. Don't get me wrong. Well, here's the point. If someone is going to go out on a field trip with this equipment. They need to be prepared for what may occur to them psychologically and physically. And while you don't know what happened during the missing time that you and your colleagues experience, one of the things that you do know that you told me about is that there were marks on your body. That's correct. Let me mention this, yes. And this is this is some... I consider it pretty solid evidence when it's on your body, if if it's not just something that could have been occurred naturally. Uh, let me mention, for example, there there are several instances in which I am pretty well convinced that I had to have been abducted due to missing time and other th- effects. But the, the the most outstanding one was on the night of July 19. Not to be confused with the day that I was talking about daylight early, but that night. When we photographed it, you've seen some of the pictures, two beautifully growing red objects with some turquoise-colored uh, pulses around that were, 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 were uh, docked and, and or, or close to each other and spiraling. But following this event, not during the event where we're taking the pictures, but following the event, my wife and I and Robert Pace Dunham, our uh he was the president of our organization, and he was the major financier of this nonprofit organization. And our eight-week-old daughter, my wife and I, our eight-week-old daughter was with us. We uh, we missed approximately four hours. It might have been a little less or a little more than four hours, but it was approximately four hours that we absolutely cannot account for. But when it was over with, we we were wondering, what in the world? What happened with this four hours of our life? But it turns out 
I had a mark down by where my left leg joins the torso that was several inches in size. Now, it was trapezoidal shape. A trapezoid is they take a rectangle, which you narrow one end of it, whereas one end is not as long as the other. It was that shape. Uh, it, uh, anybody's seen the, uh, the stone windows in Machu Picchu, the ancient ruins in, in Peru, they had trapezoidal windows, if I remember correctly. And, uh, not from a past lifetime, but from, from seeing pictures and also I, I, uh, seeing such things in Peru. But, uh, the, the thing is, this thing was on my body there. Now, it wasn't something that looked like something that somebody had scraped a pattern on it or bruised in a pattern. I wish we had taken pictures. I, I don't know. I mean, we were, of course, so tired all night long. We got four hours. We were probably awake and had no sleep during this four hours, I suspect, uh, that, that I think we just kind of blank. But this, um, this mark remained visible for, let's see, 18 years later, it was visible still. And, uh, now the other mark was, however, on the buttock of our eight week old daughter. And I don't remember how that was shaped or if it was geometric or what, but it was strange and it persisted. It was not the kind of thing one might say, well, maybe in all those hours in the car, sitting in the little baby seat that they're fastened into, maybe she got a bruise there. This wasn't that kind of thing. It, it immediately, when you saw it, you thought, how in the heck was that formed? But uh, I don't remember after all these years, the details of how it looked or its exact color. But I remember that all it also persisted for some months, if not years. Uh, and uh, th- these are not ordinary things at all. But in that case, we had that. There are other times when I had missing time. But, you know, I, I, uh, I would naturally wonder what happened. What were they? They were doing something to us. Were they just studying us? I don't think so. They've been around so long, and there's been a lot of these kind of cases over the decades. I think they know about all they need to know about us. I think they must be doing something with us or to us. I I hope I don't have some alien <laughs> implant in me, and I'm not claiming I do. But I wonder sometimes, uh, you know, uh, what what could they have been doing? And I don't know why in the world it would be down here. You'd expect it to be in your, on your head or your brain or something. It just doesn't make any sense. But uh, I just have to report what happens. And that's one reason why in studying these abduction cases, yes, people may report things that just don't make any sense. Well, and I'm not sure the whoever was involved, aliens, whatever you want to call them, want us to be able to make much sense out of them. I'm not sure it's it's... Uh, benevolent. I, I hope it's something benign that's helping do something to us that helps us do a better job in our relationship to people and the world and the universe for that matter. But I don't know. It might be something that's not good. We just don't know for sure. The main point for future UFO researchers to understand is that while you're out there looking for them and looking at them and trying to study them, they may be studying you that that is that is right and that's an important point to realize i mean we we see interactions of our group or persons in our group with the objects we do get these impressions that they somehow read your mind i have other cases i won't get into uh because we don't have time but in which yes even it seems more obvious that they knew what we 
we're thinking. And we read this not just in our own experiences. We read this in other people's reports. They may not have even gotten pictures, but they said, I swear that thing was reading my mind. And uh, you see it again and again in, in the literature. It's an honest thing. It happens whether we like it or not. But we can for now at least latch on to the hard, the hard evidence and we can monitor and try to use other instruments to, to monitor the physical effects of these objects on us. And maybe we can come to understand at least how they can knock us out into an abduction state uh, with pure energy uh, affecting the brain. Uh, who knows? We might be having, having an instrument running while some or more than one of the, the group actually calls out and gets into a somnambulistic state or whatever you want to call it. What I'm saying is our, the center of our activity, I believe, should be on hard evidence that communicates to physical scientists that then we can take the phenomena associated with some of these effects and communicate them in ways that psychologists, physiologists can begin to understand. I think we can help them. Otherwise, there's a lot of feeling around in the dark and speculation that may not be very objective. We were all human beings. We make mistakes in interpretation at times. That's why if we can keep a data framework, it will really help progress UFO research, not only in the general public, but in, in the, the, the high-tower skeptics out there. Oh, man, you know, this, this is lies. These are hoaxes. These are hallucinations or, you know, this kind of thing. I think we're at the verge now already with the evidence I have. But we're the birds where we're beginning to make the skeptics back up and say, wait a minute, maybe I keep my mouth shut. Maybe, maybe I'd have better switch sides on this story. Oh, uh, uh, and I hope that happens. But I'm doing this interview because I want to encourage other people, including scientists who may be listening, to please put your effort where it has the biggest payoff and gives you the ability to not only try to interpret it yourself, but to invite other scientists in to look at it and say, what do you make of this? And you're speaking as a person who has both been a channeler and someone who on a few carefully documented cases has had strong intuitions about where to go and when to go to have these sightings, and those intuitions have been accurate. That's right. So there is what we call a psi component there definitely is, whether we like it or not. The aliens, I mean, look at the literature. I've, I've read the literature ever since I was a little kid. And there, even back then, you begin to see some suggestion that people felt, oh my God, there, there, there was something happening in my mind that I, I knew something. I had to go outside. There was something weird out there or even other, uh, more direct things. Uh, we have to understand we're humans. Yes, we don't always interpret what happens correctly, but we need to report it and try to look at it objectively, but look at to see if there's anything we can get in the way of hard data that enable us to understand. I mean, I now feel I can understand the ELF part, that yes, I, I, they can easily make us snap into a synomalistic state with manipulating things that affect our brains. I mean, there's research in the lab that shows some pretty dramatic things can be done with magnetic fields, uh, pinging the brain. So why the aliens are probably several steps beyond us at understanding that. And I, I'm pretty sure that they they use them uh, for whatever their purposes are. I don't pretend to know. Well, 
Once again, Ray Stanford, this has been an enlightening conversation. You've been at this work now since the 1950s. We're talking close to 70 years. Thank you for sharing your experience and your wisdom with me and with our audience. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate you doing it. This, this is a real opportunity, and this particular one today about the direction we need to go. I really appreciate you opening the, the door to, of opportunity to me. Thanks a million. You're very welcome. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.